We were children of the Silicon Revolution, an X-generation conscripted to fight the console and home computer wars. A product of an analog 70s childhood, we came of digital age in the 80s, believing we could affect the world eight bits at a time. Armed with joysticks, full-stroke keyboards, jolt cola, and MTV haircuts, we proceeded into the vertical blank. There, we stayed up late at night, devising incantations from D&D rulebooks and beginner all-purpose symbolic instruction code. Video games were the match and programming was the fuse as the infinite possibilities of the digital world exploded into the internet age to come. We are Generation Atari. Hi, this is Foltonbot here. Today, we bring you an interview with Audacity Games, David Crane, Gary Kitchen, and Dan Kitchen. We recorded this interview on Friday, April 2nd, and we bring it to you as fast as we possibly can over the Easter weekend so you can hear what these legendary figures have to say about their new company and their new game, Circus Convoy. I don't think I've ever been more nervous about doing an interview than with this one. These gentlemen are legends. Uh, I think you'll hear us make weird mistakes and get flustered because I'll tell you what, it's pretty daunting to have these three guys looking at you when you're trying to ask them questions about their illustrious careers. After the interview, you'll hear a song called Dance With Me by Tony Longworth. As well, we also have a video version of this interview up on YouTube that you can find in the show notes. You may enjoy that version because you can see these legends and we've added a few little illustrated tidbits to the conversation. Enjoy the interview. These guys are legends. This may be the proudest day we've ever had on this podcast. In to the vertical blank. So, okay. So, just to just to uh, start this off, we talked to Dan last year about Gold Rush, and we expected that that was going to be the the game we're going to talk about. So, what happened? <laughs> well, how did David all this come together? Working, Dave and I have been working on. Circus Convoy, believe it or not, for three years. Somewhere in that process, we mentioned to Dan that we were doing this, and we pointed him to the direction of a fun website called um, 8-Bit Workshop. Oh, Oh, yes. And then he started fiddling around, and he revived this game he had been working on many years ago at our office in uh, Activision and started working on uh, his game. And we did not compare notes. We were working on two different coasts. Dave and I are on the West Coast, Dan's on the East Coast. It's amazing how similar some aspects of the game ended up being. But once we saw that, we made sure we steered them away from each other. But Dan's game is still in development because he hasn't worked on it as long as Dave and I have worked on ours. But ours, you know, was a good three years in the making. 
Wow. Now, so three years ago, what was the impetus? We had been asked at so many shows. Yeah. You guys get into a game? You guys get into a game? Come on, you really should do a game. And, you know, one time we had a few minutes of spare time, and we just said, we should start fooling around with something. Well, we, we discussed it dozens of times, you know, every time we were asked. And we, we uh, enjoyed working on the 2600, so... Um, you know, why not? But the first thing I said was, you know how hard this is going to be. We don't have any development tools. We don't have any art tools. You can't, you know, today with Unity or whatever, you just take a picture out of Photoshop and you're done. <laughs> with the Atari 2600, you have to make, first of all, you have to write a kernel, a display to even make the display work at all. Then you have to have art in a certain format. And so I sat down and spent several months making a drawing tool that is capable of everything that the Atari 2600 is capable of, including what we call mag shift players, including colored line by line, um, play field built in, you know, just the whole combination. And at the same time, I, I went ahead and made it so it automatically generated PAL versions of everything, which are different color sets and such. Um, and then handed that off to Gary and he started going nuts and made things like the snake, that you've seen the, oh, the yes. snake. The snake actually, is amazing. He made, the, he made the snake, I made it coil. <laughs> I actually wrote a program to make it do what it does <laughs> to, to expand. Um, and the the real turning point was when he made the giraffe. And you'll see the giraffe, it's, you know, mm -hmm. as, as you get to the second uh, train, the second, second um, convoy. Um, and it's one of the most attractive Atari 2600 sprites ever made. And um, so, you know, it, it, we had to have all the tools. Dan was working on his without any clue about how he was going to get it to market, really. Um, you know, no cartridge, no hardware, no electronics. No one well, he was talking about Kickstarter, maybe. Maybe and a we Kickstarter. Kickstarter and we decided not to do it. Yeah. So basically, we, um, we also went the engineering way and created a, a mold for cartridge plastic, a uh, new circuit board, and, um, you know, all of that stuff. So we had what Dan was going to need anyway. So we ended up kind of, you know, looking at each other and saying, well, let's just the three of us all do this together. And there was so much to do that Dan ended up no longer able to spend any time working on his game. He's doing, you know, a lot of the, the, um, beautiful things like the, the manual is commissioned, the manual and the board or the boxes and all that good stuff, doing a lot of the marketing. So, so uh, circus convoy leapfrogged gold rush in the first place. Um, then when we did a trademark search, we decided to call it Casey's gold instead. Right. Um, and so, yeah, we're trying to figure out how we're going to get Dan back on working on that so that it can be uh, coming out soon. So I, I got so many questions. You brought up so many questions. So the first is the tools that you built. Are you going to sell those to budding Atari 2600 programmers so they can no. try to build their own no. games? No. Those are your no. own. Those are your no. tools. Those are our tools. <laughs> okay. Makes Two. So, so both games right. scroll horizontally. So can you explain why or if the VCS is is better at that and 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 why that why you guys chose to do that well they don't actually scroll yeah they are screen to screen which is just a technical term for 
you know, what we would call that type of game. And all you have to do is look back at Pitfall. Um, you know, prior to Pitfall, most games were single screen. You'd have two tanks shooting at each other and that sort of thing. Um, but the idea of doing a side view of the real world is something the Atari 2600 was very well capable of doing. And then having that side view change as you run off one screen onto another. So it is, if you're trying to make a realistic looking world, the Atari 2600 is strong at that. It's one of its strengths, as opposed to its many weaknesses, like too many objects moving on the screen at the same time and all that sort of thing. Um, so that's, that's why both of these games actually have a similar look because we like the realistic um, side view, screen to screen play, like you see in Pitfall and you know Keystone Capers. Well, one thing about that is that even though the screens don't scroll, the background looks like it scrolls so well that in your mind you feel like you're playing a a full a horizontal scrolling game called suspension of disbelief. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess the, the question would be, you know, with with um, with the hundred and with ten twenty four precious bits of memory on the twenty six hundred, um, how do you manage to track all the things that you're tracking yeah. in this game? Very um, difficult. It's, it's, it's not easy. <laughs> um, I kept hearing from Dave every two weeks. <laughs> I don't mean where I am for that. <laughs> I can't do that. I don't even ram for that. That was a moniker for three years that was going on. He's yeah, got a whole well, chip ready to fix that. You know, we didn't want to do that. We just we decided not to do hardware assist. Um, if only because, as I have said, I I want you to be able to compare this against every twenty six hundred game ever made. And uh, my goal was to make a game that. You know, is in the top five games you've ever played on an Atari 2600. And you can't really make that comparison if you're using hardware assist because you can't compare to any game that was done 20, 30, 40 years ago. Right. Well, it still, it still compares favorably to Pitfall 2. Um, and that that did have hardware assist. Yeah, don't don't use Pitfall 2 in the comparison. Okay, okay. Besides that, okay, got it. Okay, we'll just... But, but I mean, I'll, just to make the point is... I'm not saying anything bad about hardware acceleration. I was the first to do it. But it, the reason back then was to try to keep the Atari 2600 alive in the face of all of the competition that was out there. And in fact, we kept the 2600 alive for 10 years when it was really only intended to last for two or three. So what was um, that called? That was the, your, your chip or your process was called what? Well, it was called the display processor chip. But it was called that because my initials are DPC. Yes. <laughs> so we had to make up the name for the chip that had the same initials as mine. And what does it do? It has um, it has some fetchers in it. Uh, one of the things that the Atari 2600 spends a lot of its time doing is painting the screen. And while it's painting the screen, it's fetching data out of ROM and deciding whether or not it's time to display it vertically, making a lot of decisions. So I built some auto fetchers that you set them up in advance and each time you read them, you get the next byte from the ROM, which is kind of how you paint, you know, picture, paint a picture of a tank. You put the first line of the tank out there in eight bits, then the second, then the third, then the fourth. 
So I put a bunch of fetchers in there and it also has the um, three-part harmony sound generator. Um, so the reason Pitfall 2 has the best music of any 2600 game of the era is because I cheated and I put some <laughs> hardware out there. Well, it might have been necessary to compete at the time, right? Uh, or were you thinking uh, Nintendo? Is that what you were trying to do? Or what? I think the NES didn't exist in, when Pitfall 2 came out. So what were you thinking about competing against? Well, the NES came out in 83. No, it, it, maybe in Japan. NES came out in the U.S. in 85. Right, 85. You're right. Pitfall, I think, in 80, Pitfall 2, 84, Dave? Yeah, I no. believe so. I mean, you know, the writing was on the wall. The, the 2600 was very long in the tooth, and it uh, wasn't going to last much longer, but we loved working on it. So, A, we could keep the platform that we loved alive, and B, we could compete against all the competition that was out there, making games better than what everybody else could because of a little bit of hardware expertise that I have. That's cool. So, so Dave, you came on to Atari pretty much near the beginning of the 2600, right? They started the 2600 in 75, and I was one of their first hires for making games on it, and I, I was hired in 1977. So, so you were hired after the first the initial set of games. Um, so the first game, did you make, did you work on slot machine first? Um, my first game was Outlaw. Okay. Outlaw, one of the best games for the Atari 2600. Just two play games for sure. That, okay. So, so was it, did you come up with the uh, destructible environment, the destructible, you know, wagons and, and, and cacti and stuff? I did. That is, that's I just have to say that that's such a brilliant move. Um, it's It makes the game so interesting and sort of variable every time you play it, right? When you're when you're when you're fighting against someone. Do you remember why you decided to do that? Was it because you wanted to do a cool game design, or it was something that you know? How did how did you come up with it? I did it because I could. <laughs> yeah, it's a good one. Um, you know, you have. To remember that what we were doing back then nobody had ever done before we're making video games um you know every different game play we tried was something that probably never been done before we were innovating every single day um in some companies their innovations show up in patents but we were so driven to get more product out as fast as we possibly could none of that stuff ever got patented but literally there was something invented every day of the year by one of the people in the industry that you look back now and say, well, that was never done before. How did you think of that? Well, it was a cool idea and we just did it. You know, like I said, <laughs> innovation was what we were doing. I think as we were playing games back then, we actually noticed that too, right? They, that was one thing you'd, you'd kind of try to, if a new game did something new, that was super exciting. Yeah, any, any advance, even at that age, I think, um, well, I'm not going to say what age it was, but even at that age of ga playing games, any advance that we saw in a cartridge was something incredibly exciting. It was like, oh, Activision shows the score in small digits. You know, things like yeah. that, where things like whatever it was, it was any small, and we would you noticed it because every change was gigantic. Yeah, River Raid is the river forever. I can't believe it goes on forever, even though it didn't, but you know, it certainly seemed like it. So uh, in Outlaw, the 
wagons and cacti and things that is those are playfield graphics that are that are moving on the screen yeah i believe so um yeah because we got the two players are shooting at each other so right it's really it, it used the atari 2600 as it was intended except for the fact that the playfield had a, a ram playfield um two players two missiles and um and the playfield so, so Dave, yeah i basically said how much ram do i have after I do the game, and how much, how big can those playfield objects be, and then wrote the display to make it work. Oh, that's cool. So, so uh, you worked on the Atari 400-800 operating system. Is that true? Yeah, basically, it was kind of odd decision from Atari that you know take your top game designers and make them operating systems people, but. Um, it was kind of like all hands on deck. Everybody stop what you're doing. We've got to get this Atari 800 out. And so um, a big team, we brought in a couple of consultants who had done operating systems before, but uh, it was actually good that the game people were on it so that we could make sure that it would still play games. Yeah, exactly. so was that at the time, was it, was it still supposed to be the next generation video game system or was it decided to be the computer? Depends on who you ask. Um, Atari management thought that they were making the Atari 800 to be a home computer that competed with, you know, Apple and any subsequent home computers. The engineering department said we're making the best damn video game you've ever made. <laughs> and somehow the VP of engineering would just lie his face off when he went into the meetings with management. And then we'd go back and start working on making the thing with great graphics and great colors and all those capabilities. Um, Al Miller was one of the people on the, um, on the operating system team as well. And we, we generally didn't like operating systems back then, because if you look at them, they, they steal cycles from your game. You know, they're doing something in the background. So like right now, I mean, you watch TV and it's perfectly normal to have your movie freeze for three seconds. Nobody even bothers with that anymore. You play a game on the on the Apple computer and everything stops while the Apple computer goes off and listens to something going on on the, you know, Ethernet port or whatever. And that's what operating systems tended to do. And we hated that. So if you make an Atari 800 game and you set bit seven of the first byte of the ROM, the operating system reads that and turns itself off. <laughs> it does absolutely nothing and the game ROM takes over the entire system. And Al was the one who insisted on that. So it got, it was called the Al Miller bit. I mean, <laughs> turn on the Al Miller bit. When Skyworks came into our annex building at Mattel, when you guys are Skyworks, we did have you sign this guy, John Little, who worked with us, his Atari 800, because John knew you did the operating system for it. Okay. I, don't, I don't recall ever signing another one. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so did you, uh, I mean, obviously the story of Activision is, is, is well told. Um, did you, though, was there an inkling that uh, after Bushnell was kicked out or after he left and there wasn't a new video game system that the writing was on the wall anyway? Was it, were those factors that led you guys out or was it all about compensation and, and, and starting a, an IP, going out and starting a new company? Well, really, it's all the same thing. I mean, once Nolan was booted out, we knew there was no one creative running the company, and Atari was all about creative. So 
there was no doubt that that writing was on the wall. Um, you know, so they, they were, they were working on some systems. They had the 7,800, they had, you know, the, the 400 was basically the video game version of the 800, make it cheaper. And so people who only want to play video games might buy the 400. And, you know, they tried the 1200 XL and other things like that. Those things were all going on. Um, but there really was no real leadership from the top. Right. Right. So, so you're at Activision. How does Gary show up? So, you know, I, I think we read we read his uh, that, um, story about building arcade in Arcade Perfect. Um, I believe that's where it's from, right? Or, or was Arcade Perfect? Did you write that? Was Arcade Perfect a story about you? I thought I read a story you wrote about it as well, Gary. Was it about the Donkey Kong? Yeah, about, yeah, Don- about, Donkey the, Kong. about the girders. Really about the girders. Yeah, um, yeah, that was an interview I did. I forget where that was published. But I also wrote, I've written a couple of other stories about the Donkey Kong work. Um, I didn't like the Arcade Perfect one, because in the end, he came up with some ridiculous um, conclusion that the game didn't have other levels because... I went off and wasted three months making the girders slant. <laughs> like, he, he completely took what I had told him. <laughs> he filled in the blanks. It, around. it took a weekend to do that, if I remember. But, uh, you know, that's all right. Well, I, in the arcade, I only ever played the first two levels of Donkey Kong anyway. I did know there were four levels. So when we got the 2600 cart, it didn't matter. It was like... We got two great levels of Donkey Kong. It didn't, it didn't matter at all. Like, you know. And honestly, that was part of my thought process is what are you going to do? You're going to make four horrible looking levels <laughs> when 95% of the people that have played the game have never seen levels three and four? I mean, you know, it, the iconic level is the slanted ramps. Everybody sees it. That's the level everybody plays most of the time. So I was worried about making a great looking first level and then i made a good looking second level which didn't have slanted ramps anyway so it didn't matter but i couldn't fit the other two for standpoint of time and money uh money being the cost of the rum and i agree with you very few people ever got to those other levels one uh, the the question was how did you come to join activision and the slanted uh slanted level in donkey kong is part of that story yeah well yeah no it is it is um we i was getting to the point where i was finishing up donkey kong i was building it in my basement dan was sitting at the chair next to me working on some atari games uh, no right. apple it, two games yep and it texted uh, with a couple of other guys we had and um you know being the businessman i, I was looking ahead to what are we going to work on next so we recognized Activision had the highest quality product out there. And I said, I'm going to call Activision. Maybe we'll get a contract with them. So I called, I asked customer service, answer the phone. I asked for product development and I bounced around for 20 minutes. Eventually got a guy on the phone named Tom Lopez, who was the vice president of, um, I guess, development at that point. Yeah. And I explained that I was in New Jersey and I wrote 2,600 games. And his, his response was, no, you don't. <laughs> you know, he said 2,600 games 
are done by Atari, and Activision spun off Atari, and we do 20th Thunder games, and that's, that's it. So what do you guys do? And I said, well, I got to get back to work. I'm finishing up Donkey Kong for Coleco. <laughs> and he said, you're going to be there tomorrow? <laughs> <laughs> so he flew out, um, came down into our basement, met us, um, saw what I was doing, and uh, I spent a long time explaining to him why the ramps weren't slanted at that point. Um, the game looked beautiful, but I had straight ramps. And he nodded, mm-hmm, yeah, mm-hmm. And he was very impressed by everything. As he got up and left, he was walking out the door. And he stopped, turned around, and said, you know, if you worked for Activision, those ramps would be slanted. <laughs> yep, that's what he said. <laughs> I remember that. And that was after a challenge. His, was it a challenge? Car drove away. I spent a few days, and I... I think right. on Monday. I think on that was a Friday. I think on Monday. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was a long weekend. I had to rewrite all the kernels. So you, so you didn't have enough time to squeeze in the other two levels, Kenny. I thought. you know enough ROM. I know. <laughs> so with what you guys have done now with this uh, with this new game, uh, do you think that you could go back and and do all four levels of Donkey Kong? Not that you would, but is the oh, yeah. technology there oh, to do it? Without a doubt. There's, there's absolutely no doubt. You could probably do it in half the size of the ROM is <laughs> of uh, a Circus Convoy. Circus Convoy is 32 banks. The Donkey Kong cartridge I put out was one bank. So no, 32 those... times the memory, yeah. We so the banks that. in Circus Convoy, is that mostly graphics? No, it's... There's a lot of code in there, too. Well, and the way the 2600 works is only one bank can be resident at a time. So anything that's going on that you see, both code and graphics, are happening pretty much in the same bank. So when you swap a bank, you need to have some, you need to have like the control, the code to control the player and all that stuff in there as well, as well as other graphics. You have to have all the display code and all the graphics in the same bank. You can change banks for doing player controls and that sort of thing, but. Generally, so it's it's not very simply where you say I put all my code over here and I'm going to put all my graphics over there, and right. there's a lot of overlaps. For example, the the main character is in every bank, right? And you can't switch to a bank that's full of graphics, right? There's and no code, code right? right? Yeah, and, and so it's it's really complicated. And we're um, not. And when you the could not normalize your bank database, you had no. to have some redundancy. Okay. Right. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> <laughs> to make it work, the, the main character better be in the same exact byte location of every bank. That's right. Unless you're going to be rewriting code to say, in oh. this bank, he's from here to here. So you got to allocate parts of the bank to make sure they're mirrored exactly. It's even more complicated, I see. Yes. Yeah, it's really it's really annoying. But everything <laughs> on Atari 2600 is really annoying. But so it's, when it's all really annoying, you lose perspective. And to us, it's fun. Yes. Because it's all equally annoying, so it becomes fun. It's like a puzzle. Yeah, it is. So, Dave, you worked on Little Computer People. That's a pretty amazing um, game in itself, or amazing idea, you know, to come up with. Do you just spend your time trying to come up with innovative things all the time? Is this just your thing um, to, to, uh, to, to break ground with new innovative ideas when making games? Going all the way back to Atari, um, 
those of us making games were making games for ourselves. I mean, we were the target market. So we would make a game because it was fun for us to play this game. And if it wasn't fun for everybody to play, they'd, they'd let you know easily, quickly, and you'd go back to the drawing board and continue to make it. So, you know, as long as like at Activision, when we had our first four guys, as long as we four found a game to be fun, we knew that it would be fun for a huge percentage of game players out there. So that's, it's really easy to do. You make something that you find to be fun. Now, the other thing that I would tend to do historically is I would put out different genres of games um, in, in sequence. So for example, I wouldn't put out three space games in a row. And the reason for that is I got bored with space games if I made one space game. So then I do a sports game and then I get bored with sports games and I do a car racing game, whatever it turned out to be. And that turned out to be serendipitous because it took about a year to get a game out to, to the shelves from start. And so after the market had been playing my space game for a year, they were sick of space games as well. And voila, here comes a sports game. And so it's kind of like I was one year ahead of the curve. I was already sick of the thing. And by the time my next game came out, they were sick of that genre. But, you know, but I, I think they broke that rule. Because when you started Activision, didn't you single-handedly put out like three games really fast? Well, yeah, we had a, you know, we had a, a business plan we had to meet, and I had to make all the development systems because I was a hardware engineer, and you can't really develop. And now you can just develop on emulators or 8-bit Workshop, as we mentioned. But back then, you actually had to have a hardware device that connected to the Atari 2600 by an umbilical cord. And um, you would load your game into that device, and that device would then play the game on the Atari 2600. And you'd play it on your screen and test it and move your joystick around and make sure your code works, all that sort of thing. I had to build at least four of those um, and write the software that runs them, while at the same time putting out as many games as I could. And <laughs> in the first three months, I did all the development systems plus Dragster. And by, I don't know, the third month after that, I had Fishing Derby. So in our first four releases, I had two of them. So I know Jeff had a question about Fishing Derby or a comment. I, I was asking about Fishing Derby because it's, it's the first game of hundreds of games where you fish. But it's the first. Every time you were ahead of the curve, you were, you were creating the curve. You're really ahead of it. Because you would create the next genre that that if it wasn't right away that they were create that they were taking that genre, it would become a standard game platform later on on or on all the rest of the platforms. So, um, so Dave, okay, so so Jeff likes fishing derby. I wanted to ask you about Laser Blast because because Laser Blast is one of my favorite games, and Laser Blast is seemingly simple. But but I think what you actually have in Laser Blast is it sort of an incredible. It's it's one of the most. It's it's like the zone. It's one of the most amazing, like controller zone sort of uh, games, um, uh, I've ever played. What? Um, laser Blast came about because of the laser. I realized that on the Atari Twenty Six Hundred, I could make that cool looking laser, um, similar to the the vine that you swing on in Pitfall. 
And, um, you know, so I said, well, I've got to have, I've got a laser. I've got to have a ship shooting a laser. I got to have it shooting at something. The Atari 2600 is really good at doing three across of moving sprites. Uh, so obviously it became three sprites and then you tweak it so that the twitch is really good. Um, interesting. Like you said, it, it was, you get in a zone and if you play it in the slow level, level one, and you want to get a million points, I think it's five and a half hours that you have to stand there. <laughs> um, and level three, you can do it in three and a half hours, I think, to get to a million. Um, and then you would get to the point where if you get out of your zone, you lose, bang, 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 you lose a bunch of lives right away. You're done. Yes. Okay. You got to be, you, you can be, be done right away. Um, and when you start learning the game, you die in the first five seconds every time. So another innovation that happens to be in Laser Blast is the joystick reset. And it allows you to start the game over again while leaning back in your recliner without having to lean up and hit the, the reset. I mean, video gamers, we're all very lazy. Press the button, yes, the red button to restart. So instead of reaching up to press the button, I think it was the joystick to the right. The cherry red button, yes. No, no it was oh. after the game, you push the joystick to the right and it starts over again. Yep. Um, the one regret I have is that that's very useful for the first few seconds but once you've um scored quite a bit i would i would like to have disabled it and the reason for that is at activision you know we got a lot of letters from fans and one of the letters came was actually tear stained and it was a person who said i got a million points on laser blast oh no oh, but no. i was not able to take a picture of it oh my goodness because <laughs> i was in at the end of the game, I was so exhausted, I dropped the joystick <laughs> on the coffee table, and it reset the game. Oh, no. You sent him a patch anyway, didn't you? No. There was, there was a, a note from his mother at the bottom that says, I saw it. I attest that this is true. Please send my son a patch. Of course we a patch. Oh, good. Did you send the patch? Of course. Okay. <laughs> Did, we, did I sign the patch? I don't think so. <laughs> so on fishing derby, I just want to see if if the Dreamcast if, if Dreamcast people have yet paid you royalties for fishing <laughs> derby. You know, fishing derby is it's again it's if you look at how the Atari Twenty Six Hundred builds a screen, um, it's rows of goldfish, and uses the that line drawing algorithm for this the fishing line very similar to laser blast laser and um you know so i just started building that and for the longest time all you had was half a dozen rows of goldfish swimming back and forth randomly turning around and people would walk by the screen at the time our first activision office was 800 square feet and 400 square feet was the kitchen and design lab and so if anybody wanted coffee, they had to walk past our screens. And people would walk by and stop and be mesmerized by them like you would be staring at an aquarium. And they, they literally, you know, it hypnotized people. And that doesn't make for a good game. So <laughs> I, I enlisted Bob Whitehead, who was working on boxing at the time, which is a very special mag shift um, object, um, you know, huge quarter of the screen sized object. And he created the shark. 
And by adding the shark, you now turn it into a race. You are racing against an opponent, and you are racing against the shark if he's coming your way to try to get that that goldfish up. And um, anyway, so it, it used the Atari 2600 in the way it was designed, rather than trying to do something that didn't do well. Um, and it just happened to be a fishing game. I mean, I didn't set out to make a fishing game. I just <laughs> I, I I look at the Atari 2600 and I say, what can it do? And what can I make fun out of what it can do? So I got to ask Gary a question because I don't think we've ever, I've no. ever got to talk to him directly about this. Gary Kitchen's Game Maker is Commodore 64 and IBM. Is that? I don't recall it. And the I, Apple. I don't. <laughs> and the Apple. Is that, I mean, there were a few other game makers. You know, you had a pinball construction set and, and shoot 'em up construction set. Music construction right. set before that. The arcade machine. There are a couple. Yeah, but is was that really the first like full fledged game making tool that you know of? Yeah, the only thing that came out before it was the arcade action arcade one. Yeah, from the arcade um, And yeah, it was the first. I consider it the first game IDE, and IDE is an integrated development environment. And everybody uses IDEs now. You know, Unity is an IDE. It's got an interface. It takes in all the aspects of design and art and everything that you have to do. And it gives you a way to import and connect them all together. And that's really what GameMaker did. And I've read a couple of articles where people recognize it as the first IDE. I think it was really far more sophisticated than the ones we mentioned because they oh, yeah. are more very focused on, on a, a type of game. This was much more general purpose. Yeah. Game now, it, I wish there was an Atari 800 version of that. But anyway. Yes. I wish there was still a version today, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I wish that was phenomenal. Dan, you mentioned to us that you, you used that to prototype some games or actually make some games in when you were, when yeah, you were I, working it. Well, Gary was busy working on the, the core system with, um, with a few guys. I was taking it and writing the demos. So, I mean, I remember sitting down and duplicating Pitfall in two weeks on it. And wow. I created some other games. And it was just amazing how quickly I could prototype games with this. It was just amazing. Um, and I think, Gary, you can tell them the, the little-known secret we had at Absolute at the time. Boy. Yeah, we, we published a Commodore 64 game that was made with GameMaker. You it did was tell anybody. the only really commercial full price Commodore 64 game that was yeah. on Game Maker was the Crossbow Arcade translation. Oh, cool. That's really cool. We started I, I working mean, on I... it and said, wait a minute. Well, this whole thing could be done with Game Maker. <laughs> so, so we did it with Game Maker 2.0 yeah. because I'd be working in my office and somebody would come in and go, you know, in uh, Crossbow, there's this thing we need to do. Game Maker doesn't do it. So I'd say, well, give me an hour. I go to Game Maker, I'd add something, <laughs> give them a new version of Game Maker. And I didn't really add that much, but I added enough to fill a couple holes in. So was that was it the Game Maker successful and, and why didn't you continue it? Well, I, I think question. it was moderately successful. I think it was too geeky to sell a million units, but I, I think it did I had a number I heard was like sixty or eighty thousand. Won a bunch of good awards, which was great. Um, and the reason I didn't continue it, which I really 
wish I had. I mean, that's my greatest regret, that product. I wish we had continued to work on it. It would have become director. Yes. Which came out years later. Um, was You generally just didn't do that back then. You created a product, you released it, and you moved on. And there was no, there was no internet. There were no putting out expansion packs. Well, even though actually online, GameMaker did have two expansion packs of, of art. That came oh, out yeah, afterwards. Right. But for the most part, you didn't improve and grow and enhance a product, you know, every year. We moved on. And right. it's yeah. too bad because I wish we'd worked on it. You didn't do franchises, as he's saying. You didn't even do sequels. I mean, in 1984, right. Pitfall 2 was the first video game sequel ever. Oh, wow. I didn't know that. That's, no, first you know, that's, a, decade, that's a decade into the 2600s life. Yeah. So it just was one of those things that, like, I love the product, but it was never discussed to just keep working <laughs> on it. It was time to go on to your next thing. And you know, I get people, I get people every month reach out to me and go, why don't you revive GameMaker? You know, <laughs> put it on the modern platform. Yeah, but yeah, I'll knock that out in my spare time. Yeah. <laughs> for free, for free. Um, because there's all the money in it, right? People go, why isn't the IVE free now? Um, so on that note, um, Pressure Cooker, which is one of, one of, um, your Activision games, um, it's another one where everybody deserves, you deserve royalties from everyone who ever made one of those cooking lineup games. I mean, Tapper was the first one. Pressure Cooker is like 10 times more complicated than Tapper. But after that, everyone else made games where you're serving food to people in the casual game industry. And uh, they all owe you royalties on that game design. If, yeah, and I... I was talking to somebody a few months ago who pointed that out to me. Somebody like in the company that did Diner Dash or one of those. Yes. And he said, oh, you have no idea how much pressure cooker <laughs> you know, inspired people. And I'd never drawn the connection. But then once he said that, it kind of was like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would have expected you guys at um, when you were doing um, the uh, – the candy stand to have something like that in candy stand. I look back and I don't think there was. So I thought maybe that maybe modern you guys had made one and everyone else had copied it, but it didn't happen there. I don't think there was a, a cooking game. I couldn't see all the candy stand games, but I went back to internet archive and I was looking to find out which ones were just get the names of them. I didn't see anything that looked like candy. Looked like yeah, I don't think there was a cooking game on candy stand. There were no, hundreds of games. There was a baseball no. game. There was a great baseball game though. We, Love did, that some, we did some great baseball games. Yeah. Um, but again, we, we see games differently than players see games. We don't so much see the cooking aspect, although Gary's inspiration to it, you know, was a, a burger franchise that happened to be around at the time. Um, we see the gameplay mechanic. So you mentioned Tapper. I wouldn't connect Tapper to Pressure Cooker. I would say Tamper, Tapper was Stampede, right? which is just an absolute yep. wonderful game. Um, like I think one of the best Atari 2600 Twitch games that uh, as it gets faster and faster, you have to catch this guy and bump that guy and, yeah. and all the things that you're doing. Um, so yeah, you, we look at gameplay mechanic. I mean, Freeway is flat out uh, Space Race, Al Alcorn's yes. first arcade game, Space Race. Yeah. And you know, you got two guys in spaceships going up the left and right side trying to avoid those little dots, whatever they are. They're certainly not stars at that size, but um, an asteroid field or whatever it is. 
um, you just change to chicken and cars and it's freeway. <laughs> so, you know, we, we all borrow from everyone else. Um, and really we just set out and say, what, what can we do that's fun and make yeah. a, make a new gameplay mechanic. I think the Owen royalties is only in jest, right? Because in game, in game design, uh, hierarchy, they owe you props for the for the things that you did. Just the way whoever did Avalanche, kind of gets some props for um, Kaboom, right? I don't right. know who, who did. It's 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 more than that. I mean, Larry Kaplan loved Avalanche in the arcade, and Kaboom came out of that love. And in fact, the only difference is when Larry was doing it, it was it was Avalanche. I mean, it was basically the exact same play mechanic as Avalanche. And I said, you know, that's a great play. And in fact, Kaboom is the best Twitch game ever made. Um, but it couldn't go out without any graphic enhancement. So I stepped in, made the mad bomber, turned him into bombs, made it buckets of water and whatever, and, and gave it a makeover graphically and sound effects. Um, but it was, it was Larry Kaplan doing Avalanche. It's as simple as that. So that's... Those other early Activision guys, um, are they interested in joining you guys in any of the stuff that you're doing now? They, they've all retired and they're happy. <laughs> I know Al Miller was with you guys at Skyworks, right? At For one time, a couple yeah. of years, yeah. Okay. So wait, yep. we're not going to get there yet. So, so, so you, Absolute comes after Activision. Um, how long did Absolute last? From... 83? 83 to 96. Uh, 83 to 95. And no, you no, guys... No, we left published... Activision in 86. 86 to 95. Now, wait, hold a second. One thing. We didn't ask how Dan came into the, came into Activision with Gary. Oh, that's right. That's right. Well, well he was have... sitting next to me in my basement <laughs> when he told me the ramps had to be slipped. That's right. You guys were Activision East at that point, right? Yes. Exactly. No, no, we were pre-Activision at that yeah. point. But you yeah. never you never went to the to Silicon Valley though, right? You guys were you always stayed in the East Coast, Gary? Well, I came to Silicon Valley ten years ago. Okay. So I'm on the East Coast I'm on the West Coast now. After Activision, Absolute, Skyworks. Uh, after all that, we ended up selling Skyworks, sold a um, controlling interest in it, stayed around for the obligatory year or two, and then left. And then I got recruited by Viacom New Media Networks to move to San Francisco to be the vice president of game publishing for Nickelodeon. That's cool. I did that for two years in San Francisco. And then Viacom decided to sell all of their video game properties and I've been here ever since. So about Skyworks. So did Skyworks started right after Absolute? Yeah, pretty much. And and did that so did that when did you guys get into the web game arena? That was the whole point of Skyworks. Was the internet was very young. Let's see what it can do with games. Yeah, we, we saw the internet as the next gaming console. You know, you look back on our history going all the way back to 1977, and every couple of years, a new console came out. Um, and it's not easy for those of us who do this to have a new console come out. We learn a new 
programming language sometimes for a different microprocessor. We learn different hardware, different uh, display capabilities and all that sort of thing. And then we finally put out a game and two years later, that's obsolete knowledge. Um, so we were looking at what's the next console that we're going to develop for. And we saw that the internet was a console. That's the way to play games. And there was no broadband yet. I think broadband was one or 2% of the country. So everybody was on a modem, maybe a 28.8 modem. So the fact that we had learned how to develop games on a small footprint for the Atari led us, or gave us the skills we needed to make a small download game that could be fun. And we've decided we'd never do more than a three and a half minute download. And that was the absolute high end and uh, made downloadable games on the internet. The other thing is, you also probably don't remember that in 1995, people were terrified of putting their credit cards on the internet. Oh yeah, no, I remember. <laughs> um, you know, right now we buy everything on the internet, but back then they literally didn't want to put their credit card out there. Credit card companies had them convinced that even though there was no liability to the credit card owner, that uh, they didn't want to put it out there. So we had to come up with a um, business model that made sense. And that's where the Adver game came in. Um, the Adver game is a three-way partnership. Uh, Skyworks was the developer. Um, Lifesavers, for example, was the client and you were the player. And so Lifesavers pays us to make the games and you get to play them for free. So it was a three-way deal. And that way Lifesavers gets your eyeballs. And at the time, companies put out websites, and it was just hilarious. They said, all right, we're going to put out a website that people are going to flock to. So we're going to show how Oreo cookies are made on the assembly line. People are going to want to do that, right? And we said, no, what you want to do is make games on your website, and people will come flock to your game, your website to play games. And while you're there, you can talk to them about your product. Yes. So did you guys start in Java, or did you start in director how did you what was the first technology you guys were using on the web to try to build games it was uh, all shockwave and director. uh director yeah so, so the plug-in associated with director and we were working very closely with macromedia at that point um because they were just launching the shockwave plug-in the same time we were looking at technologies so kind of a match made in heaven there that's cool. And, and, and once so, they saw what we could do with Shockwave, we became very close friends. <laughs> That's great. And I know, I know we at, so at Mattel, we hired you guys to do a couple, couple games. Uh, one yeah. was a racing game, which is really cool. I remember um, them. Yep. I know you, you came in to do Planet Hot Wheels, didn't get that job, much to our didn't chagrin. Didn't work that out. Yeah. So, yeah. Wasn't our decision. Yeah. The advert gaming at the time was, was really the <laughs> thing. Um, there also weren't a lot of places for kids to go to do stuff on the internet, so it it was it was uh, you know it was serendipitous. Um, what so so that era somewhat ended about 2011, 2010, 2011, maybe when Steve Jobs said he didn't want Flash, Shockwave on right on. Yeah. The um, iPad. we were still doing some stuff at different companies that I was working at for um in. Flash on those four advert games, but there were still it was dying. It was dying at that time. So oh, yeah. what what did you guys do? So, so you're this you're 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 seeing that your work, uh, your life's I mean this ten years worth of work or twelve years worth of work is is disappearing. Um, 
you know, I guess at the time it was still backwardsly compatible. You could still use it. Now a lot of it is not. Um, how, you know, seeing as, as you jumped on that platform, you know, 20 years for about 20 years or so, um, and, and you could probably still play every game up until a year or so ago. Um, is that non-permanence of that content, the fact that you can't play it anymore, does that factor into you starting to work on games for um, Audacity? Absolutely. They will say yes. It's really, I think there's a small component of that, but it's also just, I mean, a lot of, to me personally, a lot of this is just, you know, the romance of going back to a bygone era and the undying enthusiasm of the fans and really wanting to give them something magical. Yeah, I mean, the comments like you home. read, Tim, Tim Schaefer from Double Fine today tweeted, he said, time, time is just, it's a flat circle. Uh, it's <laughs> unbelievable. I just got a David Crane, Gary Kitchen <laughs> game in the mail. He said, it's just, it, it's just amazing. But I think, I think, Tim, if that's who you're quoting, Gary, also put at the end of that, you can go home again. Oh, yes. Which was a great line. Yeah. Um, yeah. So many people remember that era of the patches and the every game coming out from Activision of the highest quality. Oh, yeah. And and just and waiting for the next one. Everybody remembers that. And they just all what I read in every comment, every communication we get from people is it just brings such joy to them. They feel like they're 12 years old again. You know, yeah. it's happening all over. And that's that's a great thing. I think it's sort of Activision is that quality that everyone remembers from the early 80s. And then it went away. And then now the Activision name, not your Activision, is like synonymous with the kids don't like Activision, right? They don't even know what it was. They just know it's a company that charges them money for things that they can get for free. And now you guys are going home now making Activision again in your own way. Right. And we don't claim to be Activision, obviously. No. All we're doing is we're recreating a company that we loved and um, enjoying the challenge of continuing to push that platform to its limits. So I just want to ask one more question about the, the Skyrock stuff before we, we, we go to the new game. Um, so in that 20, 15, 20 years or so that you were making games, um, did it occur to you that there were also millions of kids enjoying those games who one day would look back and want to play them as well as that that is their console and and they're going to be nostalgic for that era um, and they don't necessarily know anything about Activision or Atari before but they do know web games and they know they're gone now yeah it's terrible We've yeah. did people have contacted both Dave and I saying, how do we revive those games? Do you have code? Can we, you know, uh, revive them in some way? We unfortunately don't have code. We sold the company. Right. And that's the one of the biggest preservation problems. You know, we're involved with the National Video Game Museum. And um, that's one of the biggest problems of preservation is... A guy can't leave a company and take his code with him. Yep. Therefore, 
he you can't go to the author and say, well, we want to preserve what you did. He says, well, it's not, you know, it was THQ, THQ went out of business. Or it was, you know, not that video game companies go out of business often. But, you know, when they do, the code goes away. That's a problem. Yeah, that is a problem. And it is a real problem with all those games. I agree. There are so many good candy stand games. Yeah. That billiards game. Remember the billiards game on candy stand? Billion plays a year. <laughs> I a mean, that's not insignificant. That, that is, is a big audience. That is the that is hours and hours of of kids playing, oh, yeah. or and adults too. But I mean, oh, yeah. that 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 is ingrained in them. Anyway, okay, so so we can't solve that problem. So yeah, so tell well, us we're thinking about it. Yeah. So tell us about your new game. And, you know, do you 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 guys launched the website a few weeks ago? You you sold the game. Um, how do you feel about it right now? I have number one hundred and seventy one. Anyway, that's what I, I got. Number twenty six. <laughs> well, we're we're knocking ourselves out with all volunteer um, manufacturing help trying to get these all out. We um, I mean, Honestly, we are concentrating on the standard edition to get them out because we we opened up all collector edition for digital downloads. You can at least be playing it while you're waiting for your game. So if you're waiting for a collector edition, be a little more patient because we're trying to get the standard editions out to people who don't have the digital download. Um, but um, well, yeah, reiterate, David, yeah. David, could you re- reiterate how someone with the collector edition purchase can get the digital download well they they registered on our website they had to if they were going to make a purchase and if you go to our web portal audacitygames.com while and log in it unlocks the uh, manage page perfect and in the manage page it will you click on a, a button that emails you a link to a downloadable that is customized to you perfect you know we just we do want to make sure everybody realizes that every game that we sell is customized to a user. And when people are starting thinking about, okay, I'm going to take my ROM and I'm going to download it and I'm going to upload it to the internet and I'm going to do all that. Well, we know who you are, for one thing. <laughs> and second... It is one can... way to meet David Crane. It's one way to meet um, What's it? In a court of law. <laughs> in a court of law, right? It's a one way to meet David Crane's lawyer. And David, right. you are very familiar with courts of law these days, right? These days, right? Yeah, well, that Gary and I do that for a day job. We just work as experts on patent awesome. litigation and such because we were in the room when the, many of these innovations happened. People are trying to patent in, you know, two years ago things that happened in the lab four right. years ago. <laughs> right. They don't even realize it. But anyway, litigation aside. Um, yes, we know who you are, and also, if you play someone else's game, you can't post to the high scoreboard unless you have their password. So if you want to give out the game, give out your password too, and then who knows who that screen name, who actually played the game that that screen name is connected to, you know. Anyway, so yeah, don't uh, don't give out your game. So you guys have been working really hard to get these out. Um do you feel like it was worth your time oh yeah this whole process yeah i was actually going to ask when you were showing the box 
Yes. Of the game, I was I was going to ask if there's any blood on the outside. Yeah, no, there is. There is a. There's a little <laughs> bit on the because outside. Because we have one of our one of our tape gun dispensers. Oh, the shield broke off, and the sharp pins are showing. And I can't tell you how much blood I have shed. <laughs> Literally, we have Gary Kitchen's blood. Blood. Yes, you can do a it's DNA like, test. It's, it's like, almost it's, like a kiss. It's like a it's kiss, like comic, a kiss, kiss book. comic book from the seventies. <laughs> it is. Except, except it's a, uh, except it's a video game. That's amazing. No, I don't see blood on this one. I, I know. I feel unlucky. I know at least one went out with a little. We looked at it and said, "Ah, just a little bit. <laughs> Don't worry." Let me mention something about that. Um, I saw there was a couple of posts in one of the forums about how, you know, we Dave has talked about how we're not really homebrew. We're more premium. You know, we're not knocking homebrew, but we 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 tend to be. Uh, Dave, you can describe this a little differently. Um, we don't see ourselves as homebrew. Um, but I did see something in the forum that said, well, if it's taking so long for you guys to manufacture and you're sitting there burning ROMs and putting on labels, that's what a homebrew is. But I think when you learn how complicated the system is that Dave created and how amazing it's basically a miniature Amazon, how <laughs> he built a custom programmer with electronics that programs this ROM with your custom serial number wow. that talks to our website and our leaderboards and a whole involved system. It's amazing. And I think in the future, when we get more games, we will probably have a, a more of a professional house doing this manufacturing. But I think, you know, we did it now because got frankly got to iron the, got to make sure it runs smoothly. And I think just because we're making games and burning the carts and labeling them ourselves, I don't know if I really consider ourselves homebrew. No, and I think that people all. don't realize that that's how it was done at like a magic when they first started making cartridges. Right, right. But so we, Steve and we, I had, we call you guys pro brew. Is what but they said it. they, but I saw them say it's not pro brew also. Oh, okay. Well, then we're going to come up with a new name. Dave, yeah. Dave well, has a good Yeah, name. I mean, first of all, the, the reason that it's taking time is not because of how we're manufacturing, except for the fact that it is, it is a custom ROM for you. So we can't just sign up with Amazon and have them ship them because each one has to be customized to you, your user account. Right. And um, so anyway, so there's a bottleneck in doing that. And right now I'm the only one capable of doing that. And we will expand that after you, we get past this crunch. So David Crane and only you have the 11 herbs and spices scribbled down on a, in an envelope and put on a shelf up here. And we and, put them in a safe every night <laughs> to make sure that he doesn't it, go out and get lost. He's yeah. programming it literally in the programmer. <laughs> he programmed it and now he's programming it. <laughs> it's like now, a double whammy. You're now, twice but something else, something else we haven't mentioned is... Um, we're also behind because the response has been greater than we expected. That's good. That's, I mean, that's we, good to hear. We expected probably by now half the volume that we have. So we didn't expect that we would be overwhelmed. But we, it, the volume, you know, fortunately was very good. Yeah. Make uh, a good game. Don't let people steal it. If you then, build it, they yeah. will play. 
I don't even know if if a lot of people would be willing to steal this. Actually, I think there, the whole idea about cool. having in your hand, I think, is the big deal. Well, I I like the reference to a magic um, because you're right. We are we we don't call ourselves homebrew or probrew because what we are is a video game publisher. We have created a video game publishing company, and we have tried to make it the highest quality at every turn. Every piece of the art, every piece of materials that you get is as high quality as it can be. And of course, we put our own names on the games, and so they won't be released before their time because they got our names on them. Um, I worked on the assembly line at Atari in 1978. Oh, that's right. Um, because they, it was 77 for Christmas, and or 70, yeah, 77. And they, they basically had a backlog because they sold more than they expected. So they had everybody in the company come down and get trained on how to work the assembly line. So it was really kind of funny to have the managers down there telling the CEO what to do. <laughs> um, but everybody went down there and took their turn. And, and that's why Dave's at Audacity, because we found out he had that experience. <laughs> and we the knew he needed people to work on the assembly well, line. You knew he could work the tape machine better than anyone else. Yeah, certainly better than me. <laughs> I don't cut myself. <laughs> Even without the guard, I don't cut myself. Yeah. But anyway, all the time with it though. But you know, it's okay. It's it's. Uh... So yeah, I mean, for the first project, um, you have to get the bugs out. You have to get the uh, whole process going. But as Dan said, uh, it's a well thought out process that is every bit of production professional production line. It's just that until we get all the bugs out, there's no professionals doing it. Mm -hmm. So um, yeah, so it's not. It's not the same as homebrew, um, and I don't like the term probrew either because we are just a new publishing company. Right. right. And this we're doing Atari 2600. Um, I, I want to basically concentrate on consoles that have physical cartridges because it bothers me that 15 years of my work on the candy stand and those games is completely gone and unusable and unreachable by anybody. Understood. And and as Gary said, the response from the retro community is fabulous. And these are people who still want to have the boxes, have the cartridges, hold them in their hands. Um, I mean, we've got games on the App Store. We had we had several number one games on the App Store yeah, while we were doing crazy. Skywars. I know. And, and the operating system changes every three four months, and none of those games work either. We would have to start over and make to make them work. Were you guys oh. there when they changed the screen size to be 4K and every game played in a little window at the top of the screen up here and you had to re every game had to recompile to go in the Apple App Store so it wouldn't take up the screen? Yeah, because, yeah, yeah, we were there. We put out one of the first games ever on the iPad. You know, we were there. At the um, launch of the iPad. At yeah. the launch okay. of the iPad. But, and you can't play that anymore. So... Yeah. Anyway, no, at so, least the web games, there's there's a chance to emulate them or bring them back. But actually, the the iPad games, the Apple games, I, I don't know if you could ever emulate some of that stuff. You know, the, right, the yeah. way that they, it's not backwards compatible. It's it's encrypted with Apple software. I mean, those may be lost forever. Yeah. yeah so we're starting on the Atari 2600, but as we expand, um, we'll just probably you know, prioritize those consoles that have cartridges because we like that. Yeah. Do you think the NES is is there and have you, do you know if, if Nintendo has 
any issues with doing NES games? We, that's a good question for me. We Gary. will find that out. Yeah, that's a good we question. We would love to do NES, but we would not do it without Nintendo being a full partner. Got it. And we will find that out. We have a very close relationship with Nintendo. We've worked with them for many, many years. And um, if we can figure out a way to get their blessing, we'll do NES at some point. Cool. That's great. Now, any people will want to know, is after a year of being out or some amount of time, will you sell uh, just a digital download of the game? There need be a, a significant amount of time so everybody who is who wants a uh, who wants it will buy a physical version. But when those people are exhausted, is there a chance that you would sell digital the current way? You certainly do with digital, so they're still secure and everything. But people could buy just a digital version. It's still up in the air. We don't know yet. Got it. I mean, I kind of like just having this version. I'm only, I'm only, I'm only yeah, going to I, I mean, you look at the quality of that box, the quality of the manual, the cartridge. We are the first people probably since 1990, what's that, 30-something years, to go to the trouble of having a tool made to make brand new Yep plastic cartridges no one's ever done that that's always been the big problem you know mm -hmm. for 20 30 years people have talked about 2600 games everybody goes yeah but nobody has a tool we right. can't make cartridges. <laughs> i mean even made the tool yeah. so you know we're so focused on the quality experience of having the unit and remembering wow the packaging is as nice as i remember and we bought the thickest, thickest shrink wrap that you can. That shrink wrap, I swear to God, I've never felt shrink wrap. <laughs> it is so hard to get off the box. Is that I'm going to try it. it on the shrink wrap. Are there any? So this this game, obviously the the Circus Convoy, is something you guys started three years ago. Was it based on anything you had started thirty years ago, or no. and are there any games that you wanted to do thirty years ago that you're thinking about reviving now? I don't think I have any. No, I don't look back. Like, you know, this, this may sound egotistical, but we're good at this. <laughs> <laughs> and you are. I, I, think, I think that's been we're, proven. I don't know, think it's egotistical. We're, we're good at making games and making them fun. And, you know, an idea is a dime a dozen. You know, ideas are a dime a dozen. The, the idea for Pitfall took 10 minutes on a scratch paper. And it took a thousand hours of programming to make it what, you know, the game you played. So, you know, there, there might be some things when we're going along and we're saying, gee, this game needs a little something extra. Oh, I remember something I thought of 30 years ago. But more often than not, it is you play the game and with 40 years of expertise, your brain just says, this is not fun. But, you know, if I did this, this and this, I think it would be fun. So you try it, you play it. Now that's fun, and you move on. Oh, cool. So that that's really how this process is. It's very iterative. Is so are you? Uh, oh, I think okay. game is the only exception. I mean, I, I, you know, once once Gary showed me that tool on the internet, and I started playing around, I actually remembered the Keystone Cannonball game I worked on back in '83, and said, you know, I I'm sad I never got a chance to finish that. And I started from scratch on that tool that Gary showed me. 
And then about six to eight months into it um, is when I found the actual Keystone Cannonball cartridge in my uh, offsite storage after 38 years. And I plugged it in and I was amazed how much I had duplicated it. And I was amazed at how much my current screen looks so much better. Wow. <laughs> because back then I was, you know, I was new at doing 2600. I put out crackpots and hadn't done any other titles. And now with the experience of having to do all the other ones I had done, uh, it's just amazing that it, it's so similar, but yet it's so much better. Um, but I had I wrote it from scratch because we don't own any of that code and we weren't going to call it Keystone Cannonball. But I, that's, I think, one of the only games that I would have liked to have seen completed. And so that's the one I focused on. Um, so that, that may be the only game we do in the near future that will be a kernel of something one of us had 38, 40 years ago. Well, that's cool. Keystone Cannonball is an amazing name, by, by the way. But too bad it can't um, be that one. Um, yeah, um, I, one I, one I, question, I, though. Um, one of the disappointments with the current state of Atari hardware, 2600 hardware specifically, is that you know they're all based on emulation and they can't play and the good ones especially the ones that have hd hdmi out they can't play your cartridges right like the, the like my restaurant 77 can't this came out with the new restaurant 77 and it still can't play it like i bought it just to see right i, I loaded on everything broke and it could play the, it can play the rom i was wondering now obviously you can play the roms and that makes it pretty simple is there a chance down the line for an audacity branded at games or something, Atari 2600, well, me, that, where you could actually plug your games in. Let me answer that. You know, I was at Majesco while these guys are building Candy Stand. And at Majesco, um, I helped bring them from a remanufacturer of Super Nintendo games to uh, the publishing sphere of, of back then it was black and white Game Boy games in 1998. Um, but you know, I, I went to Morris Sutton, who was the head of Majesco, and and he, during the plug-and-play days, I guess the last five or six years when they were selling the Froggers and whatnot that you'd plug into your TV set and it just had Frogger, um, he did a lot of that creation with toy manufacturers in China. And I went to him about three years ago and said, look, retro is big. Let's get the rights to the Atari 2600 and let's do a cheapo version you sell in Walmart for 29 bucks. There's millions of cartridges people can buy. And when we started learning, you know, when I learned that Gary and Dave were doing this and I wanted to do this, you know, I still think there is a home if the technology can be licensed or whatnot to do a new version of what was the Atari Junior, you know, the Atari 2600 Junior and sell it in a, in a mass retailer uh, right, the Retron 77, you can't buy at Walmart, but a game like, you know, a system like this, and then possibly, and I hope I'm not giving away an idea to some other group, but, you know, no. go back and license some of the top games that were out in the 80s and re rebuild them and sell them as a package for not just an at games inside the system, but you've got a game system and 10 cartridges you physically plug in. And then it gives us a home to start selling our games at retail. Right. Um, and that's something I've been a proponent of and would love to see Dave's engineering skills someday and, and <laughs> well, my contacts. That, and one thing you could take advantage of was the 7800 two-button pin on the joystick, that second pin. that, actually, And then you could make games that have two buttons if you want for the 2600. Right, yeah. 
Yeah, that's something I'd love to see done, but that's a that's a it's a great of question. Of course, of course, but it's a, something to think about. If when all this cash starts rolling in, Dave, <laughs> and you got yeah. all this engineering money now, I'm just kidding. I, I don't know. I think it's something Dave could do in a weekend, but uh, <laughs> sure. When he's so, not when he's not, when he's, he's not too, burning he's your too game. busy taping taping boxes. Yeah, when he. <laughs> So Dan, your game is next, right? We've done yes, about that, and then and then you guys have you guys planned anything further? Are you working on anything new that may, that 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 may be the next next game? I've already started some. Cool. Oh, have you? Nice. Oh, oh yeah. Cool. I showed Dave something already. How, however, however, <laughs> um, you know, Gary and I have a very strong opinion that we will not tell you anything about our game until it is ready to ship vaporware no vaporware we we don't believe in vaporware um we we never know if our day jobs are going to take too much time away from this to finish a game so you know if we announced a month before we were done and then couldn't finish it for six months we would feel bad yeah so um you will hear about these games when they're ready yeah, that I mean, is if you notice absolute... what we did, we didn't yeah. even announce the existence of the company no. until a week before we were yeah. ready to start selling that. Game. Yeah, that was exactly. that was amazing, amazing. Yeah, well, that shocked a lot everybody. of people. Yeah, that shocked everybody. People said, "Well, come on, we're not going to hear from them now for six months." Right, and suddenly, two a game is available, and it's and yeah, exactly, and it's a and it's probably the best Atari Twenty Six Hundred game ever made. Ever uh, so, it could be. It, it, most likely, it is, except for maybe Pitfall Two. Uh, I mean, course, now of course, if you take the skills that these guys are at the rate you would pay them for those skills, it's probably the most expensive Atari. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. I mean, yeah, at three, top, at three or four hundred dollars an hour, the two greatest guys in the world to do it, and and yeah, it took three years. You figure it out. That's yeah, very expensive. So. Yep. I mean, this has been great. You know, thank you guys so much for letting us talk to you about old stuff and new stuff, and and reminisce about those web days because you know that's those still hit pretty hard. Yeah. Any there anything you want to finish up with and say about the the process, the game, uh, and and how you feel about this this whole thing? Well, I would just continue to urge people to be patient. Uh, their copy of the game will be out as soon as we can. It's we're sending out some every day, and um, you know, like I said, we'll we'll get it to you as quickly as we can. Yeah. How about, how about, uh, how about Dan? Yes, uh, I think uh, you know I'm I'm now gone back to focus on on getting uh, Casey's gold done, and uh, with the tools that Dave had created, um, I had been almost akin the last two and a half years to using. You know, using uh, a graph paper almost to to really cre recreate what I did in the '80s, and now with the advent of Dave, Dave tools uh, and the systems he's put together, um, it, I'm excited to get in and finish the game, uh, tie in all his technology with QR codes and whatnot, and I think that'll be our our focus. And I'm going to bring in Dave and Gary to help with sound effects and some of the things. So. So we don't keep the fans waiting too long to to get Casey's gold done. Cool. And Gary, um, anything else you want to say about this and Donkey Kong at the same time, just to shut some people up? <laughs> if I could do a four-level version, I would do it in a second. <laughs> if, if it was copyright free. 
<laughs> but it's not. No. And my friends up in Seattle. No, that you're right. We definitely right. frown. But you know, even even King Kong is in the public domain now. If you yes, yes. You know, there was a big lawsuit between. King I remember. And I remember. <laughs> yeah. You guys would have been involved if you were around back then to do your your. Uh, right. Pat. Yeah. You know why it's called Donkey Kong? Um, because it's supposed to be stupid. Stupid. It's supposed to be stubborn Kong. Stubborn, stubborn oh, donkey. Was? Right. And yeah. when it was translated from Japanese, stubborn. Closest word they could find was donkey, donkey. is stubborn. So. Well, and also there's this kanji character, so donkey might actually translate to the kanji character of stubborn. And Could so, be, yeah. Huh. yeah. Um, no, my, all I'll say in closing is we appreciate so much the, the reaction from the community. It's really far exceeded what we imagined. And I'm not talking about sales. I'm just talking about appreciation and excitement. Um and as long as the community continues to be appreciative and excited about the things we're doing, we'll keep doing them. Yeah. Awesome. And, and they will be. Cool. Well, this was great fun. Yeah. Well, thank thank you, guys you guys so much for taking time to do this. Hey, everybody. It's Bill from Atari Bytes. Have you ever wondered why Yar wanted revenge? How one becomes a frogger exactly? Why those robots in Berserk went, well, Berserk? Me too. On Atari Bytes, we do more than review the games. We dig deep to find the story of the characters within the games. If we know the actual story, we tell you that. If we don't know the story, which is more often the case, we make one up. Hopefully, to your amusement. And occasionally, to provoke a thought or two. So if this sounds interesting to you, I hope you'll check out Atari Bytes. B-Y-T-E-S. Wherever fine podcasts are sold for absolutely no money at all. Thanks.
Next frame calculated. Prepare to write new data. V blank ending. An 8-Bit Rocket Studios production.